I wonder if you've ever been to a country um, that is vastly different to your own. I know, personally, I have gagged at fish for breakfast. Fish is not a breakfast dish, I'll tell you. Um, I have resented bartering for goods in Egypt. I want to pay a price that it says on the thing. I don't want to enter into a personal dialogue with who's ever selling it. Just give me what you're selling for the price you want. Don't charge me too much. And uh, I've been bamboozled by road signs in Kosovo that I've got no idea what they're telling me is in what direction. I've even been to Morocco's most famous square and there was a guy with a load of I assume he was a famous showing us what was going on. I took a photo and suddenly I found it was a tourist trap and he chased us round uh, the square because um, I should have paid him for the photo I took. And uh, it was very scary. And all the rules go out the window and suddenly we have to adopt to all the new rules and things can be strange and settling and foreign. Two and a half thousand years ago, a 25-year-old man called Ezekiel was taken from his homeland, where everything was familiar, where everything was uh, um, uh, natural to him. And he got taken to live in the empire of Babylon, and the empire of Babylon was swallowing up Israel, swallowing up all the faithful followers, and uh, just seemed to be decimating the people of God. So that was at 25, he was taken into exile. Five years later, at the ripe old age of? Come on. 30. Excellent. Five, 25 plus 5 is 30. At the age of 30, Ezekiel was called by God to prophesy to the people of God that were in exile, that were in a strange land. They were living in Babylon, they were longing for home. They were asking questions about the faithfulness and love of God. And they were wondering in their hearts if they would ever return and whether this was the end of Israel's story. Isn't it fascinating that Ezekiel isn't called when he's in his native Israel. He isn't called when he's in the uh, kingdom of Judah in the south. He is only called when he is in a place that he doesn't know, with a language he doesn't speak, with the customs he is unfamiliar with, and a food that might have been indigestible to his body. I don't think it's biblical to ever look for calamity, to ever look for disaster in our lives. But we should recognise that while disaster is not sought for and not longed for, disasters obviously um, uh, often the moment when God comes nearest to us, where His face is seen most clearly, where suddenly we lean on Him a little more and we know more about Him than we ever did in the times of plenty. Ezekiel's prophecies and preaching went on. You know, God bless Jonah. He's only got a couple of chapters. You can digest it very quickly. We'll probably do it at a primitive church uh, very soon. But Ezekiel goes on and some of it's weird. 
I don't know if you've ever read the book of Ezekiel, but some of it's weird, and I don't know what's going on in some of it. But he has a whole series of teachings and prophecies, and they're extensive. And they go together to form the book of Ezekiel, which is, as we've already said, one of the four major prophets of the Old Testament. All of those four major prophets happen at this transition, when Israel is going out of independence and autonomy to a place uh, of exile, a, taste, a, a place of uh, being fractured and a place of being out of the comfort zone. All four prophets are written at this moment. The people of God are struggling and it is then that God says things between these four amazing prophets. And amongst all the, the mystery and wonder of Ezekiel, um, we're going to read um, a whole chapter today um, that looks at leadership. And I want us to read it, and I think there are some good lessons we're going to learn from it. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Ezekiel, uh, which is after the book of uh, Psalms and uh, the, the, that sort of wisdom literature. And uh, it's in uh, Ezekiel chapter 34. So we're going to read the first 10 verses to begin with. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. That is classic Old Testament prophet. When you read that, you are expecting a prophetic announcement. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. Everyone say, woe. Woe. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should, uh, should not shepherds take care of the flock? Can anyone answer that question? Should shepherds take care of the flock? Yes. They should take care of the flock. It's not rocket science or brain surgery. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? The answer is... Even us, a couple of thousand years later, we know the answer to that. Yes. You eat the curds and clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. They live off the cream of the, the uh, flock, but don't help them. You have not strengthened the weak or healed those who are ill or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally I think you can underline that if you've got a bit of scripture that you can you have ruled them harshly and brutally this is what the shepherds of Israel were like so they were scattered because they were there was no shepherd and when they were scattered they became food for all the wild animals my sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill and high hill is a little subtle reference to the fact that they would worship idols um, on the high places. And they were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. That's his classic prophetic uh, announcement again. Something's coming. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my uh, flock lacks a shepherd 
and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds do not search for my flock, but cared for themselves, everyone say themselves. They've cared for themselves rather than my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. And again, is this uh, um, formula that says, you know, this is God speaking. This is not Ezekiel going off on one. This is God speaking. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. Everyone say accountable. Accountable. Let me tell you that is an uncomfortable word. I will hold them accountable for the flock. I will remove from them from tending the flock so that the shepherds no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock uh, from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. And we're going to end this little bit of reading there, but we are going to read the rest of the chapter in the fullness of time. I wonder if you can hear in in Ezekiel's words this tirade against the people who are in charge of Israel, who are in authority over the people of God. There are people and folks... Um, who are in positions of authority in Israel, who have failed in their responsibilities. They have failed to conduct themselves in a worthy manner. They have failed to lead the people of God in any righteous ways. The last king of Judah, which is one of the people that Ezekiel's got in his crosshairs, is Zedekiah. He was not a tyrant, but he was weak and he was uh, sort of marshmallow-minded. You know, he wasn't really clear on what his duties was or what direction he'd be taken. He listened to bad advice. He picked a fight when he, told, when he was told not to. Uh, and he chose an alliance with someone that he shouldn't have. And he saw the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And Ezekiel is pointing at him and saying, you have failed. You were there to look after God's people and you have failed. And then uh, Ezekiel has got such contempt for Zedekiah, he won't even call him a king. He calls him everything else except king of Israel because he had such a low opinion of this guy Zedekiah. And then there's Hananiah who is, you know, he'd find home in the 21st century. He would be just blessed uh, uh, to be around. He was like a celebrity prophet. He was in the royal court. People liked what he had to say. He would have been an influencer, being on TikTok and Instagram, and he would have shed loads of frauds because he would have told you what you wanted to hear. You want to be told you're amazing? Hananiah was there saying, you bless God blesses you and lifts you up. You are a victor. Uh, God loves the direction you're taking. He said, uh, uh, God has great bountiful things in the future for you. uh, And uh, you're going to go from strength to strength. And God already said things are going to get really bad. But Hananiah was telling people what they wanted. He was tickling their ears. He was uh, uh, pouring honey in their ears. He was doing things that God didn't want, but the people really wanted to hear. I wonder if you listen to people like that. Tell you what you want to hear. We live in the 21st century and we are good at finding echo chambers of 
TV channels, uh, podcasts, broadcasts that tell us things that make us feel good but aren't necessarily anything to do with what God has to say to us at all. Hannah and I didn't call out sin. When was the last time some of these uh, uh, celebrity Christian influences talked about unrighteousness and sin? Didn't call out sin and he said what made sense and it was comforting. Isn't that interesting? Hannah and I, what he said, they were like, oh yeah, I can see the logic of that. And it was, oh, that made me feel good. That is not a good prophet in these days. And then there were the civic leaders. And you know what? They let Zedekiah and Hananiah just rule the roost and make terrible decisions and make bad leadership choices. They listened to lies and they embraced idolatry. None of this is like killing children or uh, uh, making pentagrams on the walls. It is an evil that is insidious and that people quite happily follow because it is what they want to hear. The attitude of those in authority have a tendency to tear unthinking believers, people that don't really reality check stuff, they take them away from orthodoxy, which is sound uh, knowledge, and they take them away from orthopraxy, which is sound practice. They take them away from godly teaching and godly practice, and you end up in heresy. And for 2,000 years, the church has known exactly the same thing. Uh, church history is full of bad leaders who lead astray God's people. And God's people ignorantly, naively and thoughtlessly follow these leaders into all sorts of error. There was an Englishman in the 14th century. He was called John Wycliffe and he looked at the state of the Roman Catholic Church and he stroked his chin and then said, there's something wrong here. And the Roman Catholic Church at the time was like, you plebs, you rank-and-file Christians, you people that fill up the church buildings on the Sunday morning, you're too stupid to deal with Scripture. Scripture's too precious for you. So we're going to preserve it in Latin, which was then a dead language that only the priest spoke, and said, you know what, it's too precious for you. We will tell you what Scripture says without you having to deal with it yourselves, without you worrying your pretty little heads about it. Just do what we say. John Wycliffe was like, I think God's word's a little bit better than that. I think God's word can stand up to normal people reading it. I think God's word is actually really important for the rank and file Christians to get a hold of. And so this guy did something outrageous. He took the Latin scriptures, like that Jerome had translated into the Vulgate um, centuries before, and he translated it into English. Now, it's not quite an English that you and I uh, would be able to read. It's a little bit difficult because it's a few hundred years old. And uh, they don't have words like sort of uh, TikTok and influence in them. Um, 
And then Wycliffe was looking at the scriptures and he said, you know what, Roman Catholic Church, I think there's some problems with how you do things. And in fact, as he went on, he found there was a vast array of problems uh, and outrages that he had acquired over 1400 years of being in existence. The Roman Catholic Church had gone away from the truth. And it's why we come up with uh, this period of time called the Reformations, because the Roman Catholic Church had detoured away from the way, the truth and life that the children are learning uh, uh, in the back there. It had taken the Eucharist. Now, I quite like the word Eucharist. I'm, I'm embracing uh, particular words. And a Eucharist, as hopefully you know by now, just means Thanksgiving meal. And it, it's what we celebrate, particularly at primitive church. But the Roman Catholic Church had made it a superstition. It was a bit magical when it came in. It wasn't just a memorial meal, it was something mysterious and magical and it's the sort of thing that wizards and warlocks get involved with. Um, it had become a way of controlling people. It become a way of using power and influence to tell people what they wanted to do. And it had become a way of the Roman Catholic Church of increasing its own importance and, and domineering over other people. Now, there were Christians that come after John Wycliffe and they weren't particularly clever, they weren't rocket scientists, they weren't rich and powerful. However, they read Wycliffe's uh, translation of the scripture and they were like, wait a minute, this Roman Catholic Church has gone off the rails. They've made bad decisions. These kings, these popes, and I think at the time of Jock Wycliffe there might have been two or three popes. You know, you think there's only one? Well, let me tell you, the Roman Catholic Church is full of a fascinating interest of uh, conflict and rivalry. Uh, and so at the time of John Wycliffe there might have been three popes uh, uh, fighting out, tr uh, trying to go for supremacy. Um, which doesn't that sound godly? Isn't that exactly the sort of thing you want at the head of the church? So that was what was going on. Um, and these Christians were like, oh, I don't think God's word says anything about half of these stuff. And so these uh, uh, sort of um, followers of Wycliffe started to add their own critiques to this. They said, um, church, we think you're obsessed with power and politics. We think you shouldn't be involved in much as you are. We think perhaps that you are overstepping the mark for uh, um, sort of ecclesial activity. The church shouldn't be doing what it is. It's not in the Bible. The church doesn't do this in the New Testament. They asked, where was the Holy Spirit in church life? Where's the Holy Spirit? Where's the prophecies and words of wisdom? Where is it? You've got the priests up the front. They won't even let you read scripture. They won't even let you drink the wine during the Eucharist because you might spill it. So you get to eat the bread and then you get to watch the priest drink the wine. Fascinating times. The church had gone off the rails and the scripture was bringing them back to the reality of it. They pointed out to the elaborate ceremonies of ordination. Uh, we've got something uh, 
a couple of weeks' time where we're going to see a uh, king coronated. You know what? The secular world can get on with it, but all of this pomp and ceremony is not in Scripture and has no place in the church. It doesn't exist. All Wycliffe's followers are, why you got all these bells and whistles and hats and procedures and stuff like that and formula? It's not in Scripture. And the Roman Catholic Church had acquired it over the centuries and they were feeling a little awkward. They said pilgrimages, oh, I really like this. This is a personal, um, uh, 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 personal special place. It says pilgrimages are pointless. There are no special holy places. This building is not a holy place. There are no holy places on earth. There's nowhere you should go to a pilgrimage. God is everywhere and God is with you and in you and the idea that you have to go anywhere to find God is ridiculous and outrageous. And uh, I've heard it said a few times and I respect the people that say it, but the idea of open heaven or special places where God is, is not in scripture, doesn't exist. We should not embrace that idea. And uh, Wycliffe went on. Um, they said uh, confession, and priests would come in and you would have to confess to them, and it was just part of control and making you do what the church said and saying, you know what, that is, necess uh, uh, that is important for your salvation. And then Wycliffe's followers were like, no way does it say that. It just says, you know, uh, um, it's a gift of grace through faith. That's how you're saved. Don't add to it with bits of confession um, and uh, there's uh, these these followers of Wycliffe were called the mumblers or the lollards and if you want to look online uh, there's the 12 conclusions of the lollards and uh, that is just fascinating this just outright just critique of the Roman Catholic Church and I wonder if you could do the same today I wonder if you can take scripture and hold it up to the church, hold it up and say, this is not scriptural. We need to know our Bibles. You need to know it. You need to have them in your hands regularly. I don't care whether it's digital or physical. You need to have the scripture in your hand. It is the measure of everything, the canon of our faith. You need to be able to know, is what I'm saying true? Just because I'm saying it, just because it's up the front, just because I've been ordained does not mean to say I say the truth. When Tim leads us in worship, now God bless him, the only reason he picks up his guitar is to lead us in worship and he practices and he chooses these songs deliberately and with forethought. But I want these songs to be truthful. Can you hold up scripture and measure them against these things and find that they're right? And if there's something you have a query with, be gentle, okay? Don't storm up to him. You can storm up to me, I'm robust, and uh, I kind of do it for a living, but Tim's a volunteer, so perhaps be gentle with him. And, and the same with Sunday school. If your car, child comes in with something you're not sure about, be gentle with the volunteers. But the Bible should be the rule of everything, and if it doesn't hold up to Scripture, let's get rid of it. Dismiss it. It has no place in it. I don't want to be a church that invents its own uh, um, sort of traditions. It's got no place here. 
And I want you also, hold up scripture to every celebrity, every pastor, every preacher, every musician, and every author. Is what they sang scriptural? Not is it clever, not does it make you feel good. Is it pouring honey in your ear? No. Is it in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, which is clearer uh, on a lot of things uh, for, the, for us who live in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection? Let this church not be just my little hobby or something I get excited about and take us off the rails. Uh, we all have a responsibility as believers to keep the truth the truth. May we be careful in what we believe. May we be careful in what we practice. May we do things not because an influencer or a preacher or a musician or a celebrity has persuaded us, but because God's word is precious and it has convinced us. Excellent. So, the rogues gallery of Israel's history is kind of clearly illuminated. Zedekiah and Hananiah have particularly been exposed as uh, frauds. Um, and then we get this beautiful bit of text. Just enjoy this. This is just absolutely fantastic. Uh, as you worry about how I'm drawing you into heresy that will endanger your eternal soul, as you sing songs that you're like, where does that come from? Um, I want you to listen to this moment just of relief and reassurance. Um, verse 11 of Ezekiel 34. But this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. Can I have a hallelujah? Hallelujah! Oh my goodness, I'm so glad of this. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flocks when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. If you've ever felt scattered, there's a reassurance that God's going to look out for you. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. Everyone say home. home. He's going to bring them home. It's good. Bring them home. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in all the settlements in the land and I will tend them in a good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel. Uh, the mountains of Israel will be their grazing land and they will lie down in good grazing land and they will feed in a rich pasture uh, on the mountains of Israel. If you were a sheep, these words would be very effective. In fact, your mouths would be drooling right now. Rich pasture, good grass, mountains and ravines. If you were sheep, you would be getting very hungry and your tummies would be rumbling. Uh, and it goes on. Um, I myself will tend my sheep and make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will search for the lost and I'll bring back the strays. We're good at that, aren't we? Um, getting lost and strand. And I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong, the ones that have grown fat off all the other sheep, I will destroy. I will shepherd the, sh the flock with justice. And then we're going to um, skip to verse 23. We are going to read the intervening bits, but we're going to go to verse 23. And it says this, I will place over them one shepherd. Anyone know his name? 
Very good. Ezekiel didn't know his name. You are more privileged than Ezekiel. I, um, I, will, I will place over them one shepherd, which we know his name is Jesus, uh, but it just says, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend to them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. If you've got a physical Bible, write in Jesus there, just to remind you that all of Scripture whispers his name, that he fulfills all of it, that he is the answer to every bit that you don't understand and every bit that you do. And verse 25, I will make the covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. And I will make them a um, and the places surrounding my hills a blessing I will send down showers in season there will be showers of blessing who'd like a shower of blessing doesn't that sound good the trees will yield their fruits and the ground will yield its crops the people will be secure in their lands and they will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands who have enslaved them and it's fascinating the people who have enslaved them are not despots it's not horrible people but it's bad leaders that they've just gone lazy under and followed into desperate places um, and it goes on, they will no longer be plundered by the nations, nor will wild animals devour them. They will live in safety and no one will make them afraid. How good does that sound? Never being afraid, never being fearful, never being worried, never being anxious, never being troubled. I will provide for them in a land renowned for its crops. And they will no longer be victims of famine in the land or bear the scorn of the nations. They will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And that they, the Israelites, are my people, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Sovereign Lord. It's not a new bit, but it's quite common in Scripture. God's people here are likened to a flock of sheep. Now we live a little bit of a urban life. Most of us probably never hugged a sheep or killed one or rescued one. So it's a slightly detached illustration for most of us. But if you've ever seen a flock on TV or in a funny YouTube clip where the dogs go off and then they uh, separate, you'll know Sheep's just a really good illustration of what humanity's like. It's just really accurate illustration. I wonder if God made sheep just so that he could show humans how stupid they can be. When there's safety in numbers, a couple of the idiots at the back run off on their own. It happens with sheep and it happens with people. When it's really good to be together, a couple of us wander off and say, you know what, I'm going to get a bit of alone time for me. When the group is being idiotic and going into dangerous places, everyone, no one wanders off. Everyone goes, yeah, this is a really good idea. We're just going to head over into that dangerous dark wood where are there are from wolves. That looks exactly the sort of place we should hang out. Sheep need a shepherd to lead them into uh, green pastures. A, sh a leader is needed with sheep to take them into the best direction and protect them from danger. Because you know, sheep aren't very good at protecting themselves. Uh, me and my daughter were watching a wildlife program yesterday and we saw some rabbits and they were being attacked 
by eagles. And you know what? Rabbits don't have many defences against eagles. Eagles are just going to take them out. Well, let me tell you, sheep don't have many defences um, against wolves and wild beasts. They haven't got like uh, carnivorous teeth and they don't have sort of uh, 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 great bodies to fight off things. They are kind of sitting ducks, as it were. They need someone to protect them. And human leaders are, at best, we are uh, weak. And at best, we are half-hearted and not omnipotent. But God is perfect. God is strong enough. God is clever enough. God is aware enough. And this bit of scripture says, God will stand in contrast to all the human leaders you've ever known, and he will be the antithesis of all their weaknesses. Where human, we where human leaders are rubbish, God's character stands the test of time. The wandering and the lost, the human leaders will go, let them go, it's too much trouble. God goes after them. If you've wandered off and found your own little niche to be on your own, God will seek you out and bring you back. He will lead us to places of nutrition and food for our souls. He will take us places that are good for us. If there are any injured, he will come and minister. Be kind and gentle. He will bind up and heal and do CPR and triage and all the other things. When attacked, God will be our defender. He will be our champion. And as we sang earlier, he's the undefeated champion. So we're in a good place for that. He will defeat our adversaries. They will not triumph in the end. If you've listened carefully, and to be fair, I pointed it out in great big neon signs, there was these wonderful overtones of Jesus in 34. It just, I love it when you're reading Old Testament and suddenly you go, wait a minute, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Why isn't it? someone said something to me before? Why isn't it all over the bit of scripture saying this is answered in Jesus? And we say, Jesus is this shepherd. It's God incarnate. Jesus himself comes, and what does he do? He is the best of shepherds. He is kind and gentle to the lost and weary and the weak and the suffering and to the arrogant and to the self-important. Uh, he is severe and um, tells him off. Ezekiel shows us that God will come amongst us and lead and heal and protect in a way never encountered before. And we know this has come true. This Ezekiel prophecy has been fulfilled. We have four wonderful gospel accounts that tell us what God incarnate looks like. What he looks like when he comes across a disparate band of Israelites who are doing their own thing and not too sure of the truth and just trying to live their lives. And he comes alongside and he heals and he rescues and he teaches and he mends and he restores uh, and he makes welcome. And hopefully, 
And I'm not really sure why any other reason you'd be sat in this room. We've got individual experiences of this too. We know this Jesus. This Ezekiel who prophesied it, that it would come in the future, we go, that's my saviour. That's why I do what I do. That's why I'm here on a Sunday morning. That's why my life looks different on a Monday to my colleagues at work. That's why my language and my actions are different to everyone else I live with, because it's my Jesus. And it's really nice to see him there in the text, right there. You're going to be let down by those you look up to. You're going to be let down by your leaders and the people up the front because they're weak and sinful. But Jesus is never going to let you down. You can put your whole trust in him and it will be a safe place. And let me tell you, you need to follow him. Follow him wherever he leads you. It may look a little bit dodgy, but he's taking you to those green pastures and mountains of Israel. And it's going to be a beautiful place. Can I have an amen for that? Right, final point. So, Ezekiel 34, verse 17, and it says this. As for you, my flock, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will judge. Everyone say judge. judge. I will judge between one sheep and another and between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture? Must you also trample the rest of your pasture with your feet? Is it not enough for you to drink clear water? Must you also muddy the rest with your feet? Must my feet flock, must my flock feed on what you have trampled and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says to them. See, I myself will judge between the fat sheep, we're talking about the spiritually fat, and the physically fat, um, and the lean sheep, the ones that have been exploited. I like this bit. If you've uh, ever seen animals together, this is a great description. Because you shove with the flank and the shoulder, butting all the weak sheep and your with your horns until you have driven them away. I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will judge between one sheep and another. And we get this more in-depth reveal of what a flock of sheep is like and how they fight and they worm each other to try and get the best bits. The motive isn't important here. It's not that the sheep are angry or sinful. It's just they are uh, doing things ignorantly. They may be deliberate or they may be accidental, but the streams and pastures are being ruined by the, the sheep that are doing their own thing. And the passage goes on to say, the jostling position and the shoving and the butting makes the situation worse. And you know what? This can be part of the experience of the people of God. This was how Israel felt. You had rulers butting and shoving and making things worse for everyone else. And sadly, God's community today, the ecclesia, the church, can be the same. And because uh, the church can be full of good sheep and bad sheep. You may not know this, but we are not all the same. Matthew 7 has Jesus say this very clearly. The church was going to be made up of saved and unsaved people. 
This is not very nice and not very easy. Just because you're sat there doesn't make you a Christian. I don't know whether you are a Christian. Only God knows your heart. I can't make that decision. I can't declare you one. I can say what I see with my eyes, but I can't declare you a Christian. It is between you and God. And each of us have this relationship with God or not. And the church is full of them. Some of us are God-honest Christians who love Jesus with all our heart and we are looking forward to eternity. Some of us are pretending. You know, we make a good show of it. We sing the songs and we read the scriptures and we go through the motions, but our heart isn't submitted to Jesus at all. We are far from him. At judgment seat, here we go, I don't care what miracles you did, I never knew you. And there are others of us who have fooled ourselves. You know, we think that by singing the songs and reading the scriptures and by doing whatever Kevin says that somehow we're in. And that's wrong too. Church is full of saved and unsaved. And it's only at judgment time will we find out who's who. And so, if the church is full of the saved and the unsaved, then your experience of church is not going to be perfect. Because you've got all sorts of people who don't love Jesus uh, who are making bad decisions. And they're butting and shoving and making you feel uncomfortable. And they're like, well, if this is the people of God, then why am I experiencing this? Because there are people amongst us who don't love Jesus. Interrogate your faith. Make sure you're right with Jesus. I can't help you with that. Make sure you're right with Jesus. Make sure you've confessed him as Lord and Saviour and that your life is continually in submission to him. Secondly, we've got people at different stages of their faith. We've got some who are new Christians. You know, they've just confessed Jesus, they've got baptised and they're finding their walk. And you know what? We can give them all sorts of leeway because uh, uh, they're just finding their feet. You know, they're like little foal, um, like just sort of unsteadily walking along. And they're going to make mistakes and they're going to say things and they're going to uh, uh, push themselves to the front of the queue. And we go, you know what? We're going to be kind to them because they're just learning their their learning way. We've got others amongst us who are just immature. We've confessed Jesus as Lord and Saviour, but we've never really grown up. We've never really matured. We never really got on to the uh, meat and potatoes of the faith. We're still on the mother's milk. And those people make life difficult for others. They're just immature. They make selfish decisions. They are saved, but it's almost as if by the skin of their teeth. Because you know, they're not generous and kind. They're not developing into uh, great faithful warriors. Their prayer life is not increasing. Their scripture knowledge is not increasing. Um, they are just immature and babies and they're going to damage each other. And they're going to damage the rest of us as they rub alongside us. But you know what? God has chosen for this community of the faith to carry on regardless. And so I would love everyone in this church to have a good experience all the time of a Sunday morning and at the other meetings we uh, have. But that is impossible. Jesus said it was going to be impossible and our experience, do you know what? That says it's impossible too. Church is going to hurt. They're going to be people that upset you. They're going to be people that do things that you don't like. 
They're going to be the immature who hurt you and the unsaved that hurt you. You cannot control anyone else's behaviour. The church has tried and you know what it veers off into heresy. Can't control anyone else's behaviour. But we can ensure personally that we're not trampling the grass for others, that we're not muddying the waters for others and we're not shoving others aside. I'm trying to wrap this up, but I've got a, got a feeling of uh, responsibility here. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7. The end of all things is near. If this was true 2,000 years ago, it's even more true now. The end of things of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober minds so that you may pray above all. What does it say? Anyone reading this with me at all? Love. Everyone say love. 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 If, by goodness, if you can do one thing today, love. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Love covers over all sorts of immature, selfish behaviour that Christians indulge in. Offer hospitality to one another. Offer what? Hospitality. hospitality. Yep, I understand. Offer hospitality to one another with grumbling. Without grumbling. Without moaning. Without dragging your feet. Without tutting. Without counting the cost. <sighs> Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve others. You mean we can't use our gifts to serve ourselves? No. You have to use your gifts to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And it's why I try and be very careful what I say and what I don't say up the front. Because uh, God's very clear about the accountability of leaders. If anyone serves... They should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Amen, is what it says there. The most precious motivation and valuable characteristic we can have together is the very thing that distinguishes our God from every other God. And that is love. Very, very, very important thing to have. Work on your love for your brothers and sisters. Work on looking at them and going, oh, I want to do nice things for you. Work on looking at them in their eye, in all their mess and all their behaviour that upsets you and go, you know what, I want you to be blessed. I want to serve you. I want to do good to you. And we do this by listening to one another. Not telling them what's wrong with them, listen to them. That helps people feel valued. Don't talk and talk and talk and bend each other's ear off. Listen to the people. Spend time together. You cannot love anyone in this church unless you spend time with them. And uh, this is teaching moment. Sitting next to someone silently is not really spending time to one another. Uh, my marriage would have failed long ago if that's what I thought it took. Just sitting next to Sam, watching telly or in the cinema. Doesn't work. That's not spending time together. It's spending time, coffee, spending time before the meeting, going home group, doing whatever else. That is how you learn to love. And you're not loving if that's not your experience of church 
Express the value of other people. Tell them they're important. Tell them it's good to see them. Tell them that you miss them. Feel it in your heart when one of our number is out of action. Feel it. Go, oh, I don't like that. Everyone should be here. Don't like people. I don't like, I don't like people having holidays. Don't like it. People wander off and you're like, well, how are they doing? They're missing here. You know what? How's the church going to survive if they're, if they're going up? What happens if they don't come back? Feel it in your heart. Miss people not being here each and every week. Prefer each other over yourselves. I'll let you, that one to your own imagination. Um, Peter adds, I really like this, uh, hospitality. Um, the word he uses that is fond of guests. We tend to think of hospitality as an action. Well, he actually uses his word fond of guests. Peter says, be fond of guests. How fond are you of guests? He imagines that it should be common for Christians to invite people round their houses for food. Or if it's a bit mess at home, you take them out for a coffee or a lunch and bless them with material blessings. Not go, oh yes, I'm gonna pray for you and do the sign of the cross and whatever else. Go and give them some food for their bellies. Most of us put our hands up when we said, do we like food earlier on? We love food and coffee and that sort of thing. Be fond of guests. If we are not fond of guests, then that is not a place you should stay. We should ask the Lord to change our hearts, to cause us to be fond of guests, because that is what a Christian looks like. We are fond of guests. We like people coming round our house and bringing their muddy feet into our nice, clean carpets. And if we don't know what it looks like, go and copy someone. We have got some very good, fond of guests type people here. If you don't know what it takes, Go and have a word with them. They will tell you the little tricks and hints, maybe even the shortcuts. And if you don't like the sound of it, just do it anyway. I don't care if it doesn't thrill you, just do it. Be fond of guests. Some of it, just, just do it, keep doing it. And suddenly you go, oh, I quite like this after all. How many people did you invite around your home this week? Let me ask you. How many people did you invite round the home this week? How many people did you invite round, um, and especially, Peter's talking about, it's not talking about your neighbours, it's not talking about your family, which you have to invite round. You know what, love your mum and dad and your cousins and your brothers and your sisters. That's a separate issue. It says, family believers invite each other round your houses. How many Christians from this church have you invited round your house this week? Wonderfully, someone rang us up on Sunday and said, uh, I don't normally do this, but I really feel God telling me to invite you around the house. Now, we weren't in a position to go around, um, but I was like, oh, that's a coincidence, isn't it? Someone rang us up and said, do you want to come around our house? Um, how many people have you invited around your home? How many people? If you invite around, we'll be a bit more generous this month. Not because it's your birthday, but because you want to be generous and be kind and loving. Peter says, do it. 
Don't think about it, do it. Put it in the diary. Find someone, drag them around your house, feed them whatever they like. I don't care whether they're vegan or whatever. Give them some food, bless them. Be fond of guests, get it in your head. And uh, Peter finally goes off on one about gifts. He goes, everyone's got a gift. God has given you a gift. I don't care what you think uh, uh, about it. God has given you a gift. You have some way of serving the person next to you divinely. He has put something in you that other people aren't so good at. And he says, use that wisely and carefully and with that motivation of love. Serve that person next to you with that way. This isn't instead of gifts. You can't not invite them around the house, but then uh, do something special for them at church. This is on top of invite them around the house, be fond of guests, and serve them with the special gift that God has given you. Discern what gift God has given you. Some of us, He's given tons to, too many in my book, sometimes. I hear these preachers that can sort of sing and dance and play guitar and preach and like, you know, they're witty conversation and they've got interesting pastimes and uh, I kind of feel I'm a bit of a one-trick pony sometimes. But God has given gifts out to each of us and we need to find out what that is and then we need to use that gift not to make ourselves feel important but to serve the person next to us. And what will happen is the church will do well. I'm not saying it will grow and take over the world, but I am saying it will be a healthy place and there'll be slightly fewer sheep butting and shoving and more sheep going all in the same direction, following after the good shepherd. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the patience because uh, I've gone on and on and on. Uh, Lord God, I pray that whatever's helpful would stay with us, that it would work its way down into our soul and that we would be changed by your word. And Lord God, I pray that anything I've said that's unhelpful, it would be forgotten, it would be dismissed, it would be like chaff into the wind. Lord God, thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would be good at judging everything by your word. God, I pray uh, that Lord God, we would love our good shepherd and that we would just be filled every time he's mentioned in scripture and lord god i pray that we you'd help us be church together help us be nice and kind and loving and lord god i pray particularly today that we would be we'd get better at being fond of guests rather than thinking of them as a nuisance and an inconvenience and we want some alone time and all god's people said amen, amen.